man alive. You know what? In the Gospel of Luke, there's a scene where Jesus is coming into the city and, and everybody is excited and cheering and he kind of gives a speech about if the people weren't crying out, the very rocks would cry out. It's, a, it's an impressive scene. But then I listened to the RC kids and I'm like, man, they're like, hold my juice box and watch this. We're going to go way over, overboard on this. And I love the kids. They did a great job on that. And James playing the trumpet, like, legit, man. Yeah. I'm almost 53. I can't even play the triangle. I, I'm like, I've wasted my life or something. The kid's amazing. So anyway, it is the season of Advent. And, and what I, I really like to do in this season is use Sunday morning as a point of anchoring us. Because as I shared last week with the start of Advent, uh, there's so much busyness and there's shopping and parties and just a lot of action going on. And my heart is to have us use Sundays then to just kind of remind us of the reason for the season and in that what our calling is in relationship to all of this. And so that's the heart for today is we go into the second Sunday of Advent. And as we do that, right now I just want to go ahead and take a minute for us to pray to settle our hearts and our minds. Uh, and then we can kind of enter into the story that this is all about from kind of an unconventional uh, point of view, which is Old Testament into the New, because that's what it's really all about. So right now let's go ahead and pray together and then we'll get underway. Jesus, I, I so thank you. I thank you for the voice of children and, and how I think about how you were even like, let the little children come to me. And there is this reminder that we are uh, members of your kingdom and we pursue the things of your kingdom when we approach it as children do. And so I pray that as adults, you will give us childlike faith and childlike hearts, childlike eyes to look at our world with wonder and with anticipation and with an innocence that is so important in a world that is jaded. And so we look to you to be our teacher today, our guide, our inspiration. May we look at your story as not just simply a story, but the very fabric of our lives. And so I thank you for this time. I thank you for this pause in life to reflect on you. And I pray that we are mobilized by you in these, in these things and in these ways. And so thank you again, Jesus, for your grace and love. In your perfect name, we pray. Amen. So Advent, it is this idea of arrival, right? And what we're doing here today is we're thinking back 2,000 years ago to when Jesus came into the world, but the real essence of Advent is going back thousands of years before that and realizing that there was this anticipation on the part of the people of God. They were longing for the day when God would come in a profound way that would change everything. And so what we do during the season of Advent is we focus on certain strategic words that highlight that journey from the Old Testament to the birth of Christ. So for example, last week we looked at the idea of peace and that peace was something longed for. It was not complete. There was a lot of conflict and violence and war throughout the Old Testament, but they longed for the arrival of God and with that the arrival of peace. For today, our theme is joy. And joy is a word that is dramatically attached to this time of year. Like you're going to go to the mall and you're going to see those great big letters, J-O-Y. They're going to be on posters and wrapping paper and cards, you name it. There's going to be songs about repeat the sounding joy and joy to the world. And this makes sense that this word is so coupled to Christmas because Christmas is about Jesus, Jesus is God, and God is infinitely joyful. 
In fact, I think that's sometimes something that throws people off because they tend to envision God in their own kind of framework and they see him as maybe a stodgy, stoic, bearded figure on a throne someplace off in heaven as though he doesn't have profound joy. If he isn't uh, immensely happy even. But what we see in the Bible is that God is, in fact, incredibly joy-filled. We see in Zephaniah 3.17 that it says God sings with delight over his people. We see that Jesus invites us to enter into the joy of our Father and God by way of himself. So in that sense, God is outrageously and contagiously joy-filled. And I believe that what he wants for us in our lives is that same joy. He wants us to experience it. He wants us to ooze it. He wants us to be exposed to it. Because here's something that's interesting to me as a sidebar. Um, one of the things that's true about Christianity is that its brand is grace. This is what sets us apart uniquely as a religious belief system. Grace is the center of our, our core, kind of the center of our doctrines in some ways. But see, I think in that, what's amazing is that grace is designed then to bring us into and unlock in us a deep joy that comes from God. So much so that it's interesting, when you look at grace in the New Testament, it comes up about 150 times, but joy comes up over 375 times. It's as though grace is our brand, but joy is meant to be our jam, right? That we live in it that we express it, that we explore it, that we expel it through our person. Yet here's what I also know is kind of the reality. For many of us, joy is elusive at times. It, it feels distant. As though joy is this thing that we can sometimes worry away or kind of uh, live away from, uh, that we can pursue wrong things that rob us from the sense of joy in our lives. All of that is there. As though joy is a great idea, but it's not something that's always like this experience in us. And it kind of begs the question, why is that? Right? If God is joy-filled, God wants us to experience, experience his joy, then why does joy seem so elusive and distant? Well, part of this goes back then to the beginning of the story. Right? Every Sunday of Advent, I try to take us back to the first few chapters of Genesis because I think that kind of sets up all the framework. And when the story starts... It has a man and a woman, and they're both united with God. And in that scene, it's beautiful. It's complete. They have purpose and meaning and contentedness. And, 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 and so everything in the first, like, two chapters is rocking awesome. Like, they're just like, we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go and create and multiply and subdue and fill the earth. It's a beautiful scene. But I want to be clear, in that scene, what I think is happening is radical joy with one another, joy with God, but that's happening not simply because the conditions are ripe for joy, but more deeply, I think they have joy, like in Genesis 2, because they have the presence of God in an unfiltered way. It's the presence of God unhindered. And see, I think that's the key. I, I think what we tend to believe sometimes is that joy is found when the conditions are right. Right? That's how we kind of measure things. But, but when I look at the Bible, I actually find that joy is found not in right conditions, but in a certain type of presence. In particular, joy is found in the presence of God. And so what they have in Genesis 2 is unfiltered presence of God. See, I believe this because of something that David writes later in the Psalms. In Psalm 16, he says, You make known to me the path of life. 
and in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here's what I want to anchor as our thought for the day. Where there is the presence of God, there is the presence of joy, right? But that is the key. That's the circuit. For God to be present is to have the presence of joy. And if God is absent from the scene, then so too will be an absence of joy. See, I say that because of what happens next in the story when we move into Genesis 3. There we see there is this conscious decision of rebellion, right? They decide that they're going to do their own thing, go their own way, make their own rules, assess the situation based on their thinking or whatever else, and everything fractures, breaks down. We saw that last week, that suddenly there was no peace between the man and the woman. There was no peace between God and the people. There was no peace between the people and creation. And in the same way, when there is this moment of sin, there is this breakdown in relationship that affects joy. When the rebellion came, the rejoicing fled. We see again where Adam is talking to God, and when God's like, where are you? And he says, I heard the sound of you, Lord God, walking in the garden, Right? And so we hid. That's all that happens. They hid. But what does it say there? It says they hid themselves from the presence of God. See, that little phrase is strategic to me because of what I just said from Psalms. Where there is the presence of God, there's the presence of joy. Now they're hiding themselves from the presence of God. What is naturally going to be abandoned is they hide from God. Joy. It'll be instantaneously lost in the scene. So in shame and insecurity and in fear, they hide. And then from that, God says, you know what? Then it means you need to be banished. And so the close of Genesis 3 is this banishment from the tree of life, this banishment from the presence of God, and I believe from that, this banishment from joy. They're cut off from what they most enjoyed. Here's the trick in this, at least from my point of view. Um, even though they were cut off then from this deep, contented joy thing, uh, we as a race still craved it. It's as though there's something in our psyche that remembers the potential for that. Like, it, it was there. We had it. I, I had this longing for what it could be, what it isn't now, but what it could be. And so what we do from that, I believe, as a race, is then we begin to pursue surrogates for joy. We need to try to rekindle that sense of feeling that we had. So we pursue, pursue all these other things, people and events and experiences and stuff, and you name it. We go after all these things, and what they offer to us is not joy, but they do offer this surrogate called happy. And happy and joy are distinctly different categories. And so as a race, even though we couldn't really muster this deep, ongoing, abiding joy outside of conditions, we said, we'll settle for happy. So then we had to start arranging conditions to create this emotion that makes us feel happy for some period of time. And then we just chase that. We chase happy in so many different ways. But here's the thing about happiness that I have concluded. Um, I, I think we pursue it, A, because it's a lower-hanging fruit, I think we pursue it because it is achievable in this life. And I think we pursue happy because, frankly, uh, I think you can be happy, and I know this isn't going to be popular, but I think you can be happy apart from God. I really do. In fact, I've said this before. Um, I, I think in some ways you might find that you could be, quote, happier in life 
uh, in a life apart from God completely. See, I say that because I read the words of Jesus. Like, my favorite portion of the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And he opens it up with the series of Beatitudes, right? The attitudes we are to be, the blesseds. And so he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are those who meek, and blessed are those who suffer for righteousness. Like, here's the weird thing. He's like, you want to be really blessed, don't seek happy, seek something deeper. But in that, all those things like persecution and mourning and meekness, they don't sound fun. They don't sound happy, but they're incredibly deep and contentedness, or deep with contentedness, because again, in those things is a deeper joy. So sometimes when you are following after a God who says, give up your life to gain, that isn't going to feel happy, but it's going to be profoundly joyful. But see, apart from God, man, you can be happy. In fact, in Jeremiah, we see that he's frustrated, and this is what he says. He says, Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you, so let me bring this complaint. Now, just pause for a second. Um, This is kind of his Ecclesiastes moment. Right? Like, this is so unfair, this is so unjust. But what I love about Jeremiah and so many of the Bible characters is that they display frustration with God. They get angry at God sometimes over the conditions. And I go, that's okay to do. And that's where he's at. He doesn't stay there, but he's there in this space. And he's very frustrated, and he says, here's my bottom line problem. Why are the wicked so prosperous? And why do evil people seem to be so happy? See, he knows, he sees the problem and the reality that, you know what, you don't have to be a good person to be a happy person. You don't have to be a God follower to be a happy person. No, man, you can be happy in this world because happy can be manufactured, happiness can be bought, happiness can be manipulated for a season. But see, that's the key. It it, it can't last. See, happiness is like cotton candy in the rain, right? Right? Happiness is like a balloon to a needle. It's like a match in the wind. I mean, you name the illustration. It's like happiness is a bag of low-caloric food on a very long, arduous hike. It's not going to carry you the distance. And so we're constantly just kind of going after the new happy, the next thing to kind of rise up in us, the endorphins that give us this little moment of woo But then it goes away because... True joy can't be achieved or sustained apart from God, right? Glimpses, but not the full substance. And why? I go back to what David said. Because in your presence, God, is the fullness of joy. So you can be happy apart from God, but you can't be deeply joy-filled in a consistent way unless you have God, because that's just the way he built the system. Now, we as people... We struggle, we're distracted, we seek lesser things. But the good news for us is that God is gracious. And in his grace, he's like, you know what? I'm not gonna leave you floundering forever. No, I'm gonna create a way by which joy can be re, uh, kind of discovered and unleashed in your life. And he does this in the Old Testament in this weird sort of way. He reconstructs a type of Eden. Right, So there in Eden was the presence of God and therefore the presence of joy, and then we abandon all of that. But then God recoalesces a nation through this guy named Abraham, whom he promised, I'm going to bless you and all the families, all the nations of the world. It's going to happen. And eventually, as things evolve with Israel, they are coming, coming out of Egypt, going toward their homeland. And it's in that time that God creates this 
this space, this kind of, kind of mobile Eden, which is called the tabernacle. And, and, and it's interesting, if you look at the architecture and artistry of the tabernacle, it is palm trees and pomegranates. In other words, it mimics a garden. And it's meant to say, hey, man, this is like an Eden space. And then eventually the Israelites get into their homeland and they build the temple. And the temple has the same type of art and architecture, kind of housing this idea of a space that is like Eden. And the reason for that space is, again, going back to the presence of God and therefore the context of joy. We see the psalmist writes about this. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. That's the temple at that point, or the tabernacle. It's kind of that space. And there I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy, and I will praise you with my harp, O God, my God. And so again, you see that kind of connecting point. In Eden was God, and with God is the presence of joy. That is extracted, but now it's back, but it's back in a certain space at a certain time in a certain way. And the psalmist is in that space, and man, joy just fills this person. A profound, deep, uh, just uh, unleashed type of joy where they see the wonder and warmth of God. But here's still the challenge for all that time, all the way up to the birth of Christ. The challenge is you had to go to that space, right? So it took work. And then you can only go under certain conditions. And even as you went, there was a certain danger involved in that. And then it was limited only to Israel. So God is present in the space of humanity, but it is so small in scale. You go like, is that it? Is that all? Or is there something more to be anticipated? Well, there was because God told Abraham, now I'm going to do this for all the families of the earth. Or we're going to unleash this thing for everybody. It's just going to take some time. And so after another bout of centuries, we cross into the New Testament, right? And in the New Testament, we find this scene as a group of shepherds out in their fields watching over their flocks by night. And, and, and we tend to look at shepherds and go, oh, that's so cool. They're like people of the land. They're hardworking. They're respectable people. But in the first century, they were none of those kinds of things to the population. Shepherds were seen as somewhat dishonest, undereducated, uh, maybe a little bit conniving. They were not like the, the prim and proper people of society. They're a bit of the riffraff. And so the fact that God decides to make the first witnesses a group of shepherds kind of tips us off to the kind of people that Jesus is going to gather to himself to change the world. The unlikelies, the unassuming, the disrespected at times. They're the ones that will change the world. And so it starts in this space with these guys. And as they're out in the field, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But then the angel says, fear not. And then in that moment, there's like this conversion uh, from fear to something else, because it says, and then the angel said to them, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the nations, all the people. For under you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, I, I love the way that's set up because it starts with great fear, and then immediately the angel says, no, 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 but your fear is going to be joy. And your fear is going to be joy because I bring good news. And the good news, a Savior is born. 
And so these shepherds, they go, they see, and when they see, they are just like undone. They are undone. They are just overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because Jesus is God, and they step into the presence of even little baby God, right? Like God in human form is a little infant, but in the presence of God is what? The fullness of joy. So no wonder, as soon as they see the scene, they are overwhelmed with joy because in the presence of God unlocks the joy that they've been longing for, that all people have been longing for. And so while the scene started with angels that were rejoicing, by the end of the story, the shepherds are like, you know what, we can handle it from here. All right? We can rejoice now. And they do. In fact, it says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God, right? For all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. See, what I've always appreciated about that story is the shepherds go back to their stinky, disrespected jobs. Right? It's just same old, same old from an occupational point of view. But they are a radically changed group of people now. Right? Because for them, their rejoicing is not based on their conditions. Their rejoicing is, is based on the presence of the one that they have been in the presence of. It's based in God. And you have to understand, this presence wasn't just like, oh, okay, so Jesus was there for 33 years, and everybody around him was joy-filled, and once he was gone, the joy went away. That's not how it worked at all. The very reason he comes into the world is to give a lasting and abiding joy. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus explicitly says this, I have told you these things, my teachings, my message, my introduction of God to you in a whole new way. He goes, I've taught you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. And yes, your joy will overflow. See, see what, what I love about that just captures me is there's two components right i'm gonna fill you with a thing that is gonna pour out of you right so it's not just like oh give me joy so i can bottle it up give me joy so i can feel warm inside give me joy so i can feel complete and it stops there no he's like man i am doing this in you so it can be expressed through you so the world can be introduced to true joy true lasting change outside of conditions See, this is why I love to say Jesus didn't come to be a kill joy, but to unlock joy. He's not trying to wreck your good Friday night parties. No, he's trying to give exposure to something far more profound than just the happiness that we chase. But it requires pressing into him. He says in John 15, yes, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. See, I think this is great because in Galatians 5, Paul talks about fruit. He says, when the Holy Spirit is in your life, it produces things. He produces first love, but then second, joy. It's exactly just building off of what Jesus says here, right? He wants to produce in us joy. He's producing in us joy, but we must be connected to him. But the reason he's producing it in us and the way he does that is that now we are a new Eden. We are a new tabernacle. We are a new temple where God resides where God works, where God produces this thing in us, this joy for the world. But again, it comes when we seek God. And it comes when we seek God, especially when the conditions are hard and it wants to rob us of that joy. It's where we must press in all the more. It's a joy that stands based on what we know, not always based on what we feel. But it's a joy that can grow deeper and more profound 
as we find our roots in Jesus and we let go of ourselves and we let him really guide our lives. That we let go of our expectations of this world and we embrace kind of the world to come and we lean into him more than we kind of lean into the stuff that's familiar to us. In fact, years ago, I came across this quote that's always stuck with me by Malcolm Muggeridge. And he says this, I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For those two discoveries, I am beholden to Jesus. See, that's how Jesus invests joy into us when we stop asking the world to do these things for us, and instead we ask him to do those things through us. But through us is the key. Again, he wants to put it in us so he can express it through us. I close with this reminder of Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says to his father, now I'm coming to you. And I've told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. Again, I always want to keep that the target before us. This is what he wants for us. God wants your joy, right? So then he says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And then he says this, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. See, where I put this together, and I think about it in my own life, is that Jesus came into the world to show us what true joy was. Even as he faced the cross, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured that cross and despised that shame, right? He models to the world how joy can be deeper than conditions and circumstance. And in the same way, he's like, all right, joy is a Christian expression of the power of God in a powerless world. And as we go out into the world, the greatest thing we can bring with us as we bring the good news of Jesus is the profound joy that he gives because he is present with us and he's working through us. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are the source of joy. And I know on this day and in this season, there's gonna be plenty of us that we go, okay, I, I believe that, but I don't experience that always. And I'm challenged by that. I can just so easily pursue happiness. In fact, it's just easy to do that sometimes, but I also know that it doesn't last. It won't linger in the hard times, right? It flees quickly. And so I pray that we will use this day as a day to lean into you, to seek the joy that you give. There may be some of you here this morning or watching online where you're like, I've never sensed that because you don't follow Jesus. Maybe you've never kind of made that step that says, you know, I want to embrace what Jesus has done for me. I want to be a Christian, follow Jesus in this radical way. Maybe this is the day that you make that decision where you just pray, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for seeking happiness in all the wrong ways. I want your joy that comes from your life given for me, raised for me so that I might have life and joy in you. You make that your prayer in your way. Man, he brings you into the fold. He begins a work in you, and it's not an easy trip always. It's not always like just instantaneous joy that never dissipates. No, it's an up and down journey, but man, he is there with us in the journey, always before us, always walking alongside us, always seeking to unleash these things in us as we lean into him more. Man, I would love to know if you made that your prayer today. I'll be outside in the front, or you can use the tile on our app to say, hey, I've decided to follow Jesus. We dig that. We would love to know that. For the rest of us, boy, again, like I was saying, if joy feels far right now, I pray for you. I pray for all of us. 
that Jesus, that we will, again, be in pursuit of you, that we will always remember and genuinely believe, not just believe in ideas, but genuinely believe that when our lives are tucked in with you, that is the safest place we can be. When our lives are tucked in with you, that is the most contented space we can live in. Because where your presence is, there is the presence of joy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your long-suffering toward us. And we thank you that you have brought us into yourself so that we might have joy in you. We thank you for all these things in your good name. Amen. As we uh, 